0: Hello and welcome back to Historical True Crime, the podcast where we take a look back at history's darkest crimes and criminals. I'm your host Lizzie and today is episode 16 and we're covering a really infamous case. In a lot of our previous podcast episodes, we've uh, been covering crimes that happened in the 17, 1800s and we spent a lot of time in Europe. But today we're covering a more modern crime for historical true crime. We're going to go back to the 1930s and specifically we're going to go back to Cleveland. So today's episode is the case of the Cleveland Torso Murders. A serial killer who went by the names the Cleveland Torso Murderer or the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run operated in Cleveland, Ohio in the 1930s. He had 12 known victims or 13, depending on the source, and they were all dismembered in their murders and their bones were dumped primarily in the underprivileged uh, Kingsbury run community. And spoiler alert to this day, all of these murders remain unsolved. I wanna start this episode by talking a little bit about what Cleveland was like in the 1920s and the 1930s. So Cleveland was a growing metropolis in the 1920s they had new immigrants from all over the world joining the workforce that formed the foundation of the city's industrial and manufacturing industries in general the population was rising and wealthy residents of the city resided in opulent mansions along what was called millionaires row and they funded numerous institutions of learning and culture however The Great Depression is on the horizon, and things are about to take a dramatic turn. According to History.com, the Great Depression lasted from 1929 to 1939, and was the worst economic downturn in the history of the industrialized world. So it starts in 1929 with the stock market crash, which paralyzes Wall Street and causes the loss of millions of investors. Consumer spending and investment fell throughout the following years, which led to sharp drops in industrial output and employment as uh, faltering businesses needed to lay off their workforce. When the Great Depression peaks around 1933, there are 15 million unemployed Americans and nearly half of the nation's banks had failed. So this is the economic, social, political backdrop of when these murders occur. But despite the Great Depression, Cleveland actually experiences a great deal of activity in 1936. So Cleveland, at this point, is the sixth largest city in the country, and it promoted itself as the city of conferences. Uh, So they would attract visitors to the downtown area via the new Union train station, with a range of upscale hotels nearby and a cutting-edge public auditorium. The city hosted the Republican National Convention for the second time in a decade, but the Great Lakes Exhibition honoring Cleveland Centennial was the main attraction in Ohio that summer and the summer after. What the residents of Cleveland didn't know was that beginning in 1934, one of the most prolific and horrifying serial killers of all time would begin to commit his atrocities. 13 people are brutally killed over a period of four years. Most were beheaded, often while they were still alive, and the killings abruptly come to an end. Despite safety director Elliot Ness's claims that the crimes have been solved, no suspect will ever be formally named, and no one will stand trial. The Kingsbury-run murders are still one of the most shocking and fascinating unsolved murders in the history of the United States of America. From the introduction alone, you might have already put together how the killer got his name. Uh, So the torso killer dismembers his victims, but he's also known as uh, the Kingsbury Run murderer. And that's a little bit less self-explanatory. So a prehistoric uh, riverbed called Kingsbury Run extends from the flats, which is located along the um, Cuyahoga River, not sure my pronunciation on that one, which is close to Lake Erie, to roughly East 90th Street. And Kingsbury Run is bordered on the north by Woodland Avenue and on the south by Broadway Avenue. And it was a gloomy, deadly spot in the 1930s. The Great Depression's uh, dispossessed people endured horrendous living conditions. The majority of Kingsbury Run was taken up by a makeshift homeless uh, encampment, filled with trash and dirt. These people who were primarily homeless frequently traveled the trains to avoid the harsh winters in Cleveland or just to stay mobile. Now the roaring third police precinct, which included a lot of bars, brothels, flop houses and gambling dens, was located right in the vicinity of the run. So the most infamous murder case in Cleveland's history would play out in this really gloomy dangerous environment. In September of 1934, a young man discovers the remains of a woman in her mid-30s on the shores of Lake Erie. The torso had washed up with its thighs still intact, but amputated at the knees. The county coroner observed that the skin had developed a reddish hue and become rough and leathery due to a chemical preservative. Only a few further body parts are discovered during the uh, subsequent search but her head is never located. The woman becomes known as the lady of the lake and her actual identity is never known. The discovery is not included in the official death toll until two years later when it's designated as victim zero, a whole other year is going to pass before the case is even officially started. So a year later in September of 1935, A white male's decapitated and emasculated body is found by two adolescent boys. The body appears clean and bloodless, with rope burns on both wrists, and is completely naked except for a pair of socks. Decapitation is found to be the cause of death, according to the county coroner. But the victim is identified this time, and that's through fingerprints. And he is Edward Andrassi, a white male who frequented the Roaring Third and was 28 years old. Police will find a second victim nearby, who's also decapitated and emasculated, while inspecting the crime site. It appears to be, uh, or the bodies appear to be protected uh, chemically in a similar way to the Lady of the Lake. Evidently, this individual, the second that they find, has been dead for at least a few weeks. He's a white male, aged 40, and he's never identified. Now we uh, are in 1936, and the body parts literally start piling up. A woman is found in pieces, or pieces of a woman is found, uh, packaged in two half-bushel baskets, which are neatly wrapped in newspaper. Only about 10 days later, the remaining remains— Everything but the head are found in a nearby empty lot on Orange Avenue. Decapitation is the cause of death, uh, just like victims one and two. And this victim is identified, and her name is Florence uh, Palilo, a waitress and bartender. And she's identified by Cleveland police using her fingerprints. Nine additional bodies are found between uh, June of 1936 and August of 1938, A county coroner, uh, and this time the county coroner has changed and it's Dr. Samuel Gerber, said the precision with which the bodies have been dismembered led him to believe that the killer likely had some kind of medical training. And now I want to introduce a new character to the story and this person's name is Elliot Ness and some of you might be familiar with who he is. But Elliot arrives in Cleveland around 1934 and he's recognized as one of the Treasury agents who helped enforce prohibition laws and fought gangsters in Chicago, including Al Capone. So the next year, Ness is actually appointed as Cleveland's public safety director due to his, quote, untouchable reputation. His objective is to professionalize and revitalize a police department that has become corrupt, lethargic, and full of political patronage. He immediately sets about tackling the city's mob, police corruption, and even traffic safety. He largely, however, disregards the case of the Torso Killer, whose body count does keep rising. Ness increases his involvement in the case after yielding to increasing pressure from the mayor, Harold Burton. In September of 1936, uh, Ness is personally going to take over the investigation and says, quote, I want to see this psycho get caught. He orders the Cleveland police department to bring in every imaginable suspect, including a homeless man who lived beneath a bridge that had 500 pairs of women's shoes. A man who routinely performed uh, acrobatics on a tight rope, nearly 50 feet above Kingsbury run and a man covered in beads and amulets who claimed to be able to transfer heads from one person to another. And surprise, surprise, uh, no evidence uh, came from any of these suspects. So none of the leads materialized and Ness has to begin conducting or he doesn't have to, he chooses to begin conducting raids on homes closest to Kingsbury run in an effort to find evidence. Later, he's actually going to order a search for clues at the homeless camp. uh, And when none are found, he gives the go-ahead to burn the camp down this is his first mistake Uh, the public does not react well and it puts a blot on his otherwise uh, to this point spotless reputation and while the investigation kind of flounders nothing's happening the death toll just keeps rising early in 1937 the upper and lower half of a woman's torso are discovered In June, a 14-year-old crossing a bridge over a river peers down and sees a human skull. They also discover a bag of bones nearby. And when three men are scavenging in the 9th Street dump in August, they discover what might have been the butcher's final victims. They discover a number of packages containing dismembered thighs, arms, legs, uh, as well as a skull. And the Cleveland police decide uh, that there's a sexual motive to the crimes. And so they start investigating uh, using that angle. But instead of investigating or identifying a sex crazed serial killer, they largely just end up investigating and imprisoning a variety of gay men for sodomy. So they just chase a bunch of leads that uh, don't lead anywhere. According to an article in the New York Post, although Ness's failure to apprehend the Cleveland serial killer swiftly diminishes his image as one of the nation's top lawmen, his activities during those years in Cleveland also contribute to the downfall of his reputation. It's said that Ness consumed so much alcohol that despite having built his career as a prohibition agent, he frequently drove around town like a sozzled frat kid. In the words of his second wife um, he screwed everything in a skirt so he does not have a pristine reputation anymore and despite having uh little to no evidence the police actually do identify a potential suspect and that person is bricklayer frank uh who is 52 years old He's going to be the only person ever detained, uh, or legally detained, I should say, in relation to the torso killings. He's suspected by authorities because at the time he shared a residence with one of the victims, uh, Florence, and uh, the third victim, and he also um, happened to know two of the other victims, the only other two that are identified, uh, Edward and Rose Wallace. And Frank does confess, but his confession is a very confusing mix of precise details uh, with incomprehensible ramblings, almost as if he had been tutored on some of the details of the crimes. And he's going to die in his cell before he can even stand trial. Uh, Frank, who is 5'8", hung himself from a hook that was uh, 5'7 off the ground Six broken ribs are also discovered during Frank's autopsy, and those were all sustained while he was in the sheriff's custody. So few people still think that uh, Frank was actually the torso killer. The final suspect, uh, Francis Sweeney, is a physician from a well-known Cleveland family, and he captures uh, Ness's attention. And it's interesting because his first cousin, Martin Sweeney, is actually a sitting congressman. Residents are horrified that the crimes are continuing and the case has gone unsolved. Ness also comes under increasing amounts of public pressure before he ends up locking Sweeney in a downtown hotel and interrogating him for weeks, including using a couple of early uh, versions of a polygraph machine. In Ness's opinion, Sweeney is the murderer, but he'll never go to trial. And so here's a brief background on who Francis Sweeney was. Well, he distributed medical supplies to the U.S. military during World War I before returning to Cleveland to practice as a pharmacist and a doctor. He was married for a very brief period of time before his wife began to doubt his sanity due to his barbiturate addiction, excessive drinking, and general violent outbursts. He's put through competency hearings five times between 1933 and 1938, or the exact years that the butcher's bodies accumulated. And he barely makes it through these hearings each time. Francis Sweeney is admitted to the first of several psychiatric hospitals shortly after his conversations with Ness. And he's going to spend the rest of his life in these hospitals. However, coincidentally... The Butcher of Kingsbury Run is never heard from again. The Cleveland police are sent a letter uh, that was allegedly written by the murderer in late 1938. uh, And it read, you can rest easy now. I have come out to sunny California for the winter. Uh, The murderer alleges that they killed a person and dumped their body on Century Boulevard in Los Angeles. uh, But no body is actually ever discovered. Uh, something that's kind of interesting, it's, it's case adjacent, um, and this is another really infamous case we'll cover in a separate episode. Um, but Elizabeth Short is found killed in LA in 1947, uh, actually the same year that Ness unsuccessfully runs for mayor of Cleveland. So, with uh, or as with the torso murders, uh, Short's intestines are removed and she had her blood drained from her and then she's chopped in half. She earns the moniker Black Dahlia, and the other trait that this murder shares with the torso murderer is that it still remains unsolved to this day. And Ness, who was once the nation's top prohibition agent, will pass away at the age of 54 in 1957, a broken, shattered man with a significant drinking problem. His autobiography, The Untouchables, is released six months after his passing and served as the inspiration for a television series that aired a year later. Since then, Ness has continued to be somewhat of a cultural figure. On the east side of Cleveland near Kingsbury Run, where the Mad Butcher had left a trail of body parts, Ness was given a funeral with full police honors 40 years after his passing. His ashes are also scattered there. In uh, 1997, another theory is put up that suggests that there may not have been a one single butcher of Kingsbury run, uh, and that it was actually a bunch of individuals who might have been responsible for the murders. And this is based on the presumption that the autopsy's findings were inconclusive. First, it's possible that the uh, original county coroner's judgment of whether the wounds on the bodies were made expertly or carelessly uh, were inconsistent. And second, his replacement, Samuel Gerber, had a reputation for spectacular hypotheses, and he started to receive public coverage as a result of his involvement in cases uh, like these. The only thing that could be said for certain uh was that all the victims had been mutilated but uh, it remains one of cleveland's largest police investigations uh, and it still as we've said many times remains unsolved so the cleveland torso killer or the mad butcher of kingsbury run uh is never caught but surprisingly this case didn't ever gain the notoriety like other similar unsolved crimes um Examples like Jack the Ripper or the Zodiac Killer. Uh, but regardless, uh, it is a, a very interesting unsolved case. And I hope that you've enjoyed the episode. If you did, please remember to review, rate, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, if you've got any feedback or a case suggestion for us, you can find us on Instagram at Pod, or you can reach us by email at historicaltruecrimepod at uh, gmail.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week uh, for another dark and twisty case from history. We'll see you then.